Welcome to the Works of Wonder Therapy Podcast. I'm Dr. Beth Long, and we are excited today to have a special guest. It's Dr. Ashley from Innovative Healthcare in Dothan, Alabama. And Dr. Ashley has three children. One child um, is on the spectrum and has pans, and then another child was later diagnosed with pandas, and he is a pediatrician who has now dedicated his life to helping families, um, particularly families of children with special needs, but also children who struggle with autoimmune diseases, and if you don't know this, very often they go together, and so he, we are so excited to have him here today to tell us and educate us all on things we can do to um, help keep our kids healthier. Dr. Ashley is somebody that I'm extremely fond of and I have a lot of respect for. We share a lot of patients back and forth and, and refer a lot back and forth. And he graciously agreed to do our podcast today, and we are so thankful. And why don't you go ahead and tell us about yourself? Okay. Um, my name is Claude Ashley. Uh, I grew up in Donaldsonville, Georgia, if you know where that is. Um, I went to University of Georgia and then to Emory and got my MD-PhD at Emory. Uh, stayed there and did my residency. And joined a practice in Dothan, Alabama back in 1999 and was there for 22 years and recently opened my own uh, practice where I see a lot of complex uh, pediatric conditions, autism, um, pans, pandas, um, long COVID, things like that. Wow. And have you always been in pediatrics? Yes, I've always been in pediatrics. Um I ended up in the autism world uh, because I had a child that was on the spectrum. Okay. Okay. So you do predominantly work with families who have children with special needs or just a variety of people? It's, it's a variety, but I would say that's probably uh, when you include complex autoimmune conditions, probably 70 to 80% of what I do. Oh, wow. Okay. Okay. So, Dr. Ashley, I often hear from patients who come back from Dr. Ashley that they got a great education on nutrition. And so, I have asked him to specifically kind of talk about that. So, go ahead and tell us about that. Okay. Well, it, it, it really all starts uh, roughly 15 years ago uh, when my son uh, was diagnosed with um, pervasive developmental delay at four years of age. He was never speech delayed. He knew his ABCs at 18 months, uh, 200 flashcards at age two. And it just wasn't on this daddy's radar that something was up until he got in the preschool setting. And then things started to kind of unravel. And we found out he was on the spectrum. And at that time, um, the medical field offered two things for kids with autism other than therapies, and that was Abilify and Risperdal, which are two atypical antipsychotics with very bad side effects. And right. his mom and I said, we're not going there. So we began to attend conferences and try to learn about things we could do to help our son of course, if you build it, they will come, and word got out that I had a child, and so we started seeing uh, a number of kids with autism, 
Um, in these meetings, we were hearing about the importance of nutrition. And one of the things we did with my son very early on is we went gluten and casein free. And it was a game changer for us. Um, I would have never predicted that diet would make that big of a difference in a child uh, with autism. In fact, uh, there's a group called the Autism Research Institute that polls families uh, regarding various interventions. And with over 3,000 families polled, 80% say that the gluten-free diet makes a difference with their children with autism. Oh, wow. I didn't realize it was that high, 80%. Wow. It's really fascinating. And if you've seen it with your own eyes, it'll certainly make a believer out of you. Uh, and so you, you, it begs the question, why is that? Um, why in the world would diet have such a profound impact? Um, our kids have uh, a lot of biochemical issues. Uh, one of the problems they have is something called intestinal dysbiosis. They have a lot of bad bugs in their gut. Mm. And there's that's a multifactorial situation. Some of that has to do with diet. Um, it's not uncommon for these kids to eat five things. Um, I often tell my patients that my son survived off popcorn for a solid year because that's all he would eat. So he ate at breakfast, lunch, and supper. Yes. Well, you're not going to engender a great microbiome by eating popcorn every meal. <laughs> It's not uncommon for these kids to have really bad guts. Um, I'd say 80% have some degree of constipation. The others may have five loose, high-volume stools a day. It's, it's really a minority of kids on the spectrum that don't have these kinds of GI issues. Right. Uh, and so uh, I got firsthand with my son uh, the knowledge of, wow, this makes a difference. Um, and so we would talk to patients about the importance of diet um, uh, in our practice and, and certainly have seen um, a lot of kids do tremendously better uh, when their diet is, is in a better place. Well, we have seen that just right, just naturalistically, we've observed that children who tend to eat higher carbohydrate diets with a lot of gluten do have much more severe symptoms. So, yeah, I completely agree with you. So there is a very strong autoimmune component to autism, which is kind of how I ended up in the autoimmune arena. There was a study many years ago that showed if you have two first-degree relatives with autoimmune illness, your likelihood of having a child with autism goes up threefold. But if you have three first-degree relatives with an autoimmune illness, your likelihood of having a child with autism goes up ninefold. So there's a huge autoimmune component, and gluten, whether you have celiac or gluten sensitivity or true gluten allergy, no matter if you don't have those, it's still a pro-inflammatory food that probably all of us need to avoid. Right. Uh, so if you take kids that have a condition that probably had at least an autoimmune component, taking away highly pro-inflammatory foods um, can make a difference. And, and we've certainly seen that. And casein in dairy is also 
highly inflammatory, although it's not as inflammatory as um, as gluten. Okay. Any other foods, like a third food you would recommend eliminating? or? Well, um, dyes are a problem across the board. Um, uh, we see this day in and day out. It is a problem uh, with ADHD. It's a problem with autism. It's a problem with uh, this autoimmune condition we treat called PANDAS. Um, you know, dyes need to go, and, and it's sad. We're one of the only developed countries that puts that kind of stuff in our food. Um, and in general, the Western diet is, is killing all of us. Um, uh, much of uh, the problems that we're facing with chronic illness in this country goes right back to diet. Um, and, and to get into more of the specifics, uh, for example, we know that 42% of the Caucasian population in this country is vitamin D deficient. Uh, if you talk about people of color, then it goes up to 70 to 80%. Oh. Well, why is that of importance? Well, obviously, vitamin D is important for bones, but it also plays a critical role in cell-mediated immunity. Here we go. We're back to the immune system again. And in fact, there was one study that showed that if you could get mom's vitamin D correct and in the right range during pregnancy, that you could reduce the risk of autism in the in the offspring by 15% just by correcting vitamin D. Oh, wow. Which is fascinating. And, and we, we just we just don't think enough about diet and the importance of that in everyday life for all of us, but especially for our special needs kids. So I get asked this question all the time when I talk about nutrition. I want to hear how you answer it. People say, if I didn't feed my child this food, they wouldn't eat. So how do you respond to that? Okay. So yes, you cannot force feed a child and you certainly can't force feed a child who's like a spectrum child or, or a child that has other special needs. So you have to do the best you can to make good choices in the things they eat. So for example, my son ate five things and here we are, we're going gluten free. And my first thought was uh, to my wife, I said, gosh, we're going to starve him to death. Uh, not really. It, it's, it, it seems like a big mountain to climb, and it is not trivial, but it's doable. And so what we tell people is, look, there's evidence that the gluten-free diet helps, but this is not something you decide on Monday to do on Tuesday. Yes. Okay. You've got to take the few things they eat. You've got to go out and find gluten-free versions of that. Then you've got to experiment to see which ones they will consume. And then you set a date. And once you've figured all of that out, you start the gluten-free diet. Now, once you start it, if you're going to start it for the purpose of autism, it has to be 100%, which means grandparents have to be on board, okay? They can't be slipping a cookie. And, and we certainly encountered that with my son. Um, so it's, it's, it's doable, but it takes planning. Um, however, the benefits can be like night and day. Uh, my son is, has high functioning autism and he will tell you if he consumes gluten, he is in a brain fog. He is at college now. He will not consume gluten 
prior to a big test because he knows it's going to affect his cognitive abilities. When he left home and he was on his own, did he did he kind of eat more gluten than than you would have allowed him to? And did he report it back about the consequences? That's exactly what happened. And we kind of started to loosen up a little bit when he was in high school, just kind of played with it. Um, We had done a lot of interventions that had his gut in a little better place at that point. He had less gut inflammation. And so we thought we were in a good place to do that. And, And it was just amazing to get this feedback from him about how he felt after he consumed gluten. Oh, wow. um, and, and, and like I say, uh, now um, he self-regulates when he knows he has something important. If it's a weekend and he doesn't have anything within three or four days that's important, he may cheat a little. Okay. But for the most part, he he pretty much sticks to it because he knows it makes a huge difference for him. Um, that says a lot in itself because a high school's I mean, I'm so sorry, a college student having that self-control because he knows it affects him that much is, that's a pretty good testimony to how important it is. Absolutely. And my youngest son had a very um, terrible reaction to dyes. And he's that way about dyes. Uh, Funny story. I think it was his 15th birthday. Uh, My wife, Kelly, went out and got him a, a big cookie made and she had it made in a special bakery that was gluten-free and it had no dyes but when he opened the box and saw the coloring of the icing he said i am not touching that because i don't believe it doesn't have dyes oh wow that's how aware he was that (laughs) dyes are not good for him so he wouldn't touch it um even though we you know tried to convince him it was okay (laughs) so what what vitamins do you suggest that every child be taking? Sure. So uh, we see a number of deficiencies in uh, kids with, uh, and and I'm primarily talking about my autistic population, but it really is a general statement. Um, Certainly vitamin D deficiency is very common. Um, We do see some zinc deficiency. Um, Sometimes uh, kids with autism that have pica, We often think about uh, iron as being a problem. Uh, A lot of times that can be zinc. And uh, zinc, of course, helps stabilize the immune response. So zinc is an important supplement that we use quite a bit of. Um, There was a landmark study years ago looking at kids with apraxia, which showed that the combination of vitamin E as an antioxidant and omega-3 fatty acids had a profound effect on expressive communication. And so there's a company that has um, a product called Speak that has those uh, in it, and it was formulated strictly based on that study. That is a supplement that we use almost across the board in our nonverbal or or minimally verbal autistic kids and have seen tremendous benefit. Um, It's not uncommon to start that supplement and then a couple of weeks later, the speech therapist say, wow, what in the world did you do? Um, It just makes that much of a difference. Oh, wow. There was a uh, study many years ago that showed that keeping the ferritin level, uh, which ferritin is a measure of your iron stores, 
keeping the ferritin level 30 or above can have an impact on speech in our kids. So we often check their iron levels or their ferritin level. And this is iron deficiency, not necessarily iron deficiency anemia. It's not gone that far yet. But just getting the iron levels right can have an impact on speech. And we know that to be true from um, old research on from formula companies that showed that, gosh, if you don't have iron in formula, you can have learning disabilities. So iron is important for brain development. So let me ask you this question, because I have learned a lot about the ferritin test because the sleep clinic at Children's, they they liked for children's ferritin level to be 75, mm. which I learned from another pediatrician that's pretty high, right? Isn't isn't the range 50 or so? What's so the it, range? No, it's, it can be anywhere from 30 to uh, a couple of hundred. One of the tricky things about ferritin is it's also an acute phase reactant. So if you have some sort of autoimmune, significant autoimmune process going on, the ferritin can be elevated and it doesn't necessarily reflect your iron stores. Um, We've always uh, kind of worked toward anything in the 30 to 50 range is where we kind of try to keep it. there may be benefits for restless leg syndrome and sleep with higher levels because we know that that is like the major cause of restless leg syndrome in children is iron deficiency. Mm-hmm. So there may very well be benefits of keeping that higher for restless leg. So if I were a parent and I wanted a ferritin, ferritin test, is that a different test from a CBC? Yes, it's a separate test. And do most... Uh, most pediatricians perform ferritin tests, or is that a specialized test? Uh, I would say most pediatricians do not look at ferritin. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> um, and, and you know, I, I probably would not be aware of all this literature if I didn't have a child on the spectrum and take care of kids who are on the spectrum. Um, it's not a routinely performed test, so it's something that you would have to specifically ask for. Okay, but do most do most labs do it? Would you have to go somewhere special or? No, it's a it's a typical lab, so okay. it would be any anywhere you get typical labs drawn, you could get a ferritin. Okay, okay, so oh, okay, I'm so sorry. Keep going on the the other vitamins that you would recommend. Uh, outside of that, um, of course, magnesium is calming, and our kids tend to be a little magnesium deficient. Um, we're always amazed, uh, Kelly, uh, many times with a kid that has trouble settling down to sleep, particularly our autistic kids, we'll discuss an Epsom salts bath with them at night. If they're in that Epsom salts bath for 20 minutes, it's amazing how calming that is and how much it can help with sleep. And, and Epsom salts is, of course, magnesium sulfate. Um, and so they're absorbing that through the skin and it makes a difference. And we use quite a bit of magnesium, nice natural way to kind of smooth the edges uh, in these kids. Um, and then there's a host of other things, you know, um, if you get into the biomedical things that go uh, on in autism, um, mitochondrial dysfunction has been described. Um, immune um, neuroinflammation has been described. There's a lot of things. And so there's specific supplements that we use 
that are many times vitamins that might have an impact on that. Um, there's We could do a whole nother podcast, and I'd be glad to do it, on MTHFR and folate metabolism and the importance of activated folate in kids that have the less desirable genotype, which is more prevalent in kids with autism. So we use a lot of activated folate, sometimes methylated vitamin B12 in those kids. Um, but as a general statement, um, vitamin D, zinc, uh, speak, uh, which has our omega-3 fatty acids, a good multivitamin uh, is is key. These kids are not eating the rainbow, okay? They are not getting all the nutrients they need. So supplementing those nutrients, don't underestimate the importance of that. The B vitamins are cofactors in many of the important biochemical reactions in the brain that affect cognition and behavior. So we always try to get them on a good multivitamin as well. Do you have one that you recommend? So I'm partial to the Kirkman um, multivitamin. Uh, Kirkman was a company that was actually, as I recall, an offshoot of the Autism Research Institute. So all the things they formulated were kind of specifically geared toward kids who were on the spectrum. And they tend to, it's very clean. There's no major additives. It's, of course, gluten-free. And um, it uh, has elevated B6 in it, which is important for our kids. They need a little more. Um, that gets back to MTHFR and oxidative stress, which we may discuss at another date. Um, so, uh, you know, there's, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that have to do with these biochemical abnormalities that we often tweak as, as, uh, as we move forward. Okay, so I don't I don't know if you can do this briefly or not, but can you um, go over pans and pandas mm-hmm. and kind of why a lot of pediatricians push back on that? Okay, um, I tell you what, let me. I wanted to share one more thing oh, on diet, and we'll go into pans and pandas. I want to talk uh, just for a minute about a very interesting study that was done in mice a few years back with regard to the ketogenic diet. The ketogenic diet has been shown to be helpful in kids with autism. Um, In this particular study, they were looking at seizure activity. And so we have known for years, even going back to the dark ages when I trained, that for kids that have refractory seizures, many times a ketogenic diet will work. And I have had kids that were having 200 small seizures a day go to zero on the ketogenic diet. It's really fascinating. So in this study, they had chemically induced seizures in a group of mice eating a normal diet. They had a separate group of mice that were consuming a ketogenic diet. They then, they then did a fecal transplant, so they took the microbiome out of the ketogenic diet mice and put it into the mice that were having seizures. And with that fecal transplant, they eliminated seizures. So what does that say? That says that what's happening when we change the diet in these kids is we're changing their microbiome. 
And it is also the best example I've ever seen of the importance of the gut-brain connection. You know, seizures originate in the brain, and yet here is a remedy that starts in the gut and fixes that brain problem. Very fascinating. It is. And really, it's really where the field is going um, with the microbiome and understanding that gut health is important for really all autoimmune illnesses. And in particular, it makes a big difference for our autistic kids. Um, so I, I heard the word pandas in like 1998, one time in a morning report at uh, Eggleston Hospital in Atlanta. Uh, and I never heard it again until my son was diagnosed with autism. We were attending conferences and learning about autism, and we started to learn about pans and pandas because it turns out it tends to occur more frequently in kids with autism. And we didn't understand that now. We we do understand it. Uh, we didn't understand it then. We do understand it now that kids with autism and kids with pandas tend to have elevation in the same cell type called TH17 that's a highly pro-inflammatory cell type. So kids with autism who already have an elevation in TH17 are more susceptible to having an inappropriate immune response to a routine infection, which is what pandas is. Pandas is you get strep, and not everybody that gets strep gets pandas. So there has to be some predisposition. Certainly autism is a predisposition because there is immune dysfunction. And instead of making the good guys, as we call it, the good soldiers that react against strep, you also make some bad soldiers, which are antibiotics bodies that react against the brain. So it's an autoimmune problem after strep that leads to neuropsychiatric symptoms. Okay. Well, the person that coined this term and found this condition, Sue Sweeto, was at the National Institute of Mental Health, where that's where she did her research on pandas. She was actually looking at kids that had Sydenham's chorea, which is similar to rheumatic fever but different. And then she had yet another group of kids that didn't meet criteria for Sydenham's chorea, but were developing OCD and and other things after strep. Those were the kids that she diagnosed with pandas. Well, you can imagine that um, the NIMH is uh, primarily psychiatrist. So this idea that neuropsychiatric symptoms might be autoimmune in nature was not necessarily well received with many of her colleagues. And a couple of those folks wrote editorials, didn't produce data, just wrote editorials saying this can't be true. And hundreds, if not thousands, if not more children have suffered because of those statements that really were based upon someone feeling like they might be disenfranchised if the immune system was causing neuropsychiatric symptoms. And that's where the whole debate about pandas started. I mean, there is no debate about it. It's real. If you know anybody that's got long COVID, long COVID is pans or pandas by another name. It is a post-infectious syndrome that has neuropsychiatric symptoms. I have seen adults 
after COVID walk in this office crawling out of their skin who have never had a day of anxiety in their life. And that's exactly what we were seeing with pans and pandas. So if there's any silver lining to all this that's happened with this pandemic, I'm seeing more physicians kind of grasping the concept of pandas since we started having patients with long COVID. Because now when you talk about 33% of the folks that got COVID having long COVID, it's kind of hard to, you know, ignore that. I mean, that's a lot of folks. So um, that's where the controversy came from. There really should be no controversy. These kids that develop this condition and the people that develop the bad neuropsychiatric symptoms with long COVID are debilitated. They are non-functional. The kids with pandas have school avoidance. Mm -hmm. I had one kid that they got up every day, got dressed, drove to the school for two years, and he could not get out of the car. Two years they did until we got the diagnosis, figured it out. Now he's back playing ball and doing everything like he used to do. But it's unfortunate that it took that long. And part of that goes back to that controversy. Um, so I think that's why it's been slow to kind of catch on. Certainly insurance companies have latched on to those editorials and said, oh, this is experimental. I don't have to pay for it. Um, that's a whole nother issue. Yes. <laughs> yes, it is. And the psychiatrist sitting on the board of all of these things is, is another issue because they really do get kickbacks from drug companies. And I wish that was more common knowledge, but. Correct. Um, I read a study, I'm sure you've read it, um, where they, it was a group of Harvard psychiatrists who basically created borderline person, I mean, bipolar disorder in children. And they, they were given $4 million by a drug company. And I, I don't know why that is not just commonly discussed right. in our field that, right, it, it's kind of where the money goes, but there's all these facts that are not where the money goes that are true, right? So, That's right. Um, For example, I believe MTHFR is an inborn error of metabolism, just like all the other things we screen babies for um, when they're born, right? It's a genetic abnormality. There, We know the genotypes, and we know there is a remedy for many people. There have been multiple studies that showed that people that had at more adverse outcomes after COVID who developed blood clots in particular had the less desirable genotype of MTHFR. How much morbidity and even mortality could we have prevented had we known those patients' status on MTHFR beforehand? You know, it is a risk factor for recurrent miscarriage. The American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology says, okay, if you have two miscarriages, we'll check your MTHFR. Well, why the heck don't you check it up front? Right. And not have to go through two miscarriages. So, yeah, a lot of medicine these days doesn't make sense. And I am an advocate and a strong believer that, that we need to be doing MTHFR on all these kids at birth because the kids that are developing regressive autism – are kids that are vulnerable, and we need to know who they are, and knowing their MTHFR status would make a difference. Right. Oh, okay, so we're definitely going to have you back to talk 
a lot more about that because that's fascinating. That's honestly something I've never even heard of. And I'm, you know, I study a lot in this field, so I'm kind of shocked. Um, But that's just how right little it's known and it needs to be well known. So um, when when we're looking at pans and pandas, is it just like like you typically diagnose an autoimmune where you kind of rule out some other stuff and you look for the autoimmune indicators? Yeah, it's more or less a... You have to exclude other autoimmune conditions that might cause similar symptoms. Mm-hmm. But, you know, when you have a patient who walks in and says, my, my child never had a problem, they got strep a week later, this happened, and it happened suddenly overnight. Sue Sweeto says most families not only know the day, but the time that their child changed, and it is like that. Uh, it's very sudden. Um, it, it, you know, the clinical picture starts to fit. Right. Uh, this is a post-infectious syndrome and needs to be treated as such. Psychiatric meds can help a little, but they're more or less a Band-Aid on a gaping wound because you're not treating the underlying cause, which is an inappropriate immune response. Right, right. Okay. And and that is a, is a common story that I hear all day, every day. My, my child was speaking and then all of a sudden stopped and, um, did, you know, did regress. And they do. They know the weekend that it happened or the day that it happened. And so that's heartbreaking. And more pediatricians need to be on top of this. Exactly. There's a remedy. And, and we can get those kids back functioning and back to their regular life if we just kind of open our ears and, and listen. Right. And I let me attest, I have seen that happen over and over and over with children I've referred to you. I'll see oh. them once and I, and I see a very distinct symptom set and then I'll see them again. And they're they're truly different people. Thank you. It's pretty we amazing. Try. Well, I mean, that's why we love you so much. And I'm the only one. Um, I'm the only clinician that gets to do this today. But everybody else is upset because we love you that much. And you're kind of a superhero at our office. Well, it's, it's, uh, Kelly and I, so my oldest son had autism and subsequently developed PANS. And, uh, we didn't know he had PANS. He got a bronchitis and got put on steroids and antibiotics. And within a few hours, we had the best version of our autistic son we had ever had. I mean, it was like night and day and and didn't dawn on us until my younger neurotypical son who was outgoing baseball player, if he made a 99 on the test, it was an off day. On Monday, gets up on Tuesday, cannot leave the house, afraid of everything, felt like we went across the bridge, it was going to collapse. A semi went by us, it was going to turn over on us, um, became had the eating disturbance, uh, terribly anorexic, almost got a feeding tube, and it happened overnight. And it was obvious to us, oh, this is pandas and our oldest son had pans. So Kelly and I feel like, gosh, we were sent these kids for a reason, you know. Uh, Since we have lived this life, why can't we utilize our experience to help other kids? And so that's why we do this. And um, we're, we're just glad that we can make a difference. Well, we are so thankful that you are, and you really, really are making a difference. And um, we will be so excited to have you back to talk about, say it one more time, MT? MTHFR. 
Okay, I'm fascinated. I'm going to do a little bit of research before we talk about it. But I, yes, this is definitely something we should be screening for and we should advocate for it. So thank you so, so much for your time today and for everything that you do. Back at you. Thank you as well. Thank you. All right. You have a great day. Help a lot of families. <laughs> hey, I'll try. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Works of Wonder Therapy podcast. We are so excited to have Dr. Ashley, and we will definitely be having him back to educate us a lot more on these topics. We would love it if you would leave us questions, um, comments below, things that we can address in future podcasts. We would love to do that. And please click like, subscribe, or the bell so that you can continue getting these podcasts. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you to Von Boris Church for um, just helping us do this podcast and for um, doing all of our sound and all the things that we cannot do at all. And we also want to say that Von Boris Church has a special uh, program for children with special needs called VF Buddies, and we would love to have you come and visit. Thank you. Thank you.